All right, well, last week as we entered into the Christmas season together, we started a new series of messages that we're calling Christmas as Mission. And I said that even though it's a new series of messages, what we're actually still looking at, what we're still developing, what we're still talking about is the same big idea that we began the year with way back in January. And that big idea is simply that life is mission, that my life and your life and every aspect of it, every category of it, every area of it, okay, is mission and the mission isn't ours, is it? It's Jesus' mission. And so the challenge for us is to package up the whole of our life, not a little bit of our life that we put into a little box and we use the nice paper and we put, you know, kind of a crinkly bow on it that we recycle year after year and give it to Jesus, but rather to get out the big box, just big enough to fit the whole of our lives and then fit the whole of our life into the box, get out the really sweet paper cover it up and get a new bow, not one that you have to resurrect and, you know, get uncrinkled. Put that on there. Give that to Jesus and say, here, I I don't know what you can do with it, but it's for your mission. And the mission, simply put, is to take his gospel mercies, real and practical help for people with real and practical needs, and his gospel message of a salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, get this, to the ends of the earth. It's a global mission, and it starts in our homes, and it flows into our schools, and it goes into our offices, and it invades our neighborhood through us. It transforms a city, and then it extends even to places, at least for us, like Haiti and like India, where God has led us into strategic partnerships. It goes even there. It's a global mission And we are to be global Christians. And so that's life as mission. But what we're doing in this Christmas season is we're looking at life as mission through the lens of Christmas, or to put it differently, through the lens of the one who is himself the eternal, infinite, invisible God, the creator of all things, the sustainer of all things, the one for whom and through whom and to whom all things have been created and exist, who through a supernatural conception clothed himself with our humanity, entered into this world, grew into a man, and lived among us, and who then at the end of his life looked back on that conception, looked back on that birth and said, guys, if you want to know why Christmas, okay, here's the deal. I came into the world for this reason, and I came into the world for this reason, and I came into the world for this reason, and for this reason, and for this reason, and what we're doing is we're looking at those statements We're looking at those reasons why Jesus came into the world because he came into the world on this mission that we're called to give the whole of our lives to. And we learn about the mission when he hands to us the purposes. So Christmas as mission. And what we're going to do is we learn today, as we return to our study today, what we'll see is that this mission that we're on is a mission of service. Service is what we're going to be talking about. That is the fundamental trait. That is the fundamental character. That is the constitution, if you will, of this mission that we're on. We're going to see that the mission that we're on is a mission of service, and it's led, therefore, by people who... Don't miss this. It's very different. Who come to understand, little by little day by day as they learn to follow Jesus, that we increase by decreasing. It's different, isn't it? That we gain for ourselves the kind of things that actually matter by emptying ourselves of the kinds of things that don't really matter as much as we thought. 
And that true exaltation, the kind of exaltation that we're really going to care about and be eternally grateful for in the end, okay, that kind of exaltation comes not by trying to get everyone in our life and everyone in our world, including Christ, to serve us. But little by little, day by day, in going to the cross with Jesus, that's where he takes us. And learning to lay our lives down, learning to crucify our desires to get everyone in our lives, including him, to serve us, so that we can then serve him and we can serve everyone else in his name. And so we pick up our study today in Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 32, where we find, at least in the story, another one of these, here's why I came statements by Jesus. Mark, who's writing this narrative, says this. He says, and they, meaning the fully grown Jesus who came into the world on that first Christmas day and his 12 disciples and a whole group of other people who also happened to be traveling together with them were on the road, in this case, from Jericho, and they were going up to Jerusalem, which is a statement that I think Mark intends for us to take literally and metaphorically. It is literally true that you go up the road from Jericho to Jerusalem because Jerusalem is 3,500 feet higher in elevation than Jericho, which is down by the Dead Sea. So you go up. But it's metaphorically true as well. This is the road to the cross, guys. This is the last trip to Jerusalem. Jesus is leading them to the cross, and I think Mark is saying, hey, newsflash, that's an uphill climb. That's a strenuous deal, and yet that's where he leads, and Mark notes that because he says, and Jesus was walking where? Behind them? No, 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 no. He was walking ahead of them. And so if you're wondering what's involved in following Jesus, I think Mark is artistically suggesting that it is a strenuous, arduous, uphill climb in which you are called by the power of the Spirit in accordance with God's Word and in community with one another, from which we gain wisdom and strength and support and prayers and shoulders to cry on and all these other things in which you scale the peaks of your selfishness and self-centeredness of your ego and pride, of your passions and sin, of your dreams and ambitions, of your agendas and plans, in which you ascend to the cross where you crucify, one by one, day by day, all of the desires that wage war within every single one of us, and as a result compel us to try to get everyone else, whether we're thinking about it or not, to serve us, including Jesus himself. Lord, I think I'd rather you be my servant because I've got a good plan. Does anybody other than me think that way? So Mark says, and they, meaning the fully grown Jesus, who came into the world on that first Christmas, his 12 disciples, whole other group traveling with them, were on the road from Jericho going up literally and metaphorically to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them because that's what leaders do. And he's taking them to the cross. And so Mark says, and they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. Now, why is that? Because the cross is a fearful thing. It was a fearful thing for Jesus. You'll recall in the Garden of Gethsemane, the stress on him is so great that the capillaries in his skin begin to break, and it looks as though he's sweating blood. That stress, that strain, it's a fearful place for Jesus. It's a fearful place for me. It's a fearful place for you. It's a fearful place for for these people too. And exactly why is it a fearful place? Because it's a place that you go to die. 
That's why. It's pretty simple, isn't it? I mean, for Jesus, physically, for us figuratively, He leads us to His cross and says, I died here, and now you die here. Different way, but there is death and glory none the same. And so they were amazed and Those who followed were afraid, and so taking the twelve again, Jesus is going to clear things up for them. So he began to tell them exactly what was going to happen to him when they arrived there in Jerusalem, and look at what he says, and notice the clarity with which he says this. He says, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man, and that would be me, will what? I will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and then they will condemn me to death and deliver me over to the Gentiles. Pretty clear so far. No ambiguity here. And they, the Gentiles, meaning the Romans in this case, will mock me, will spit on me, will flog me, and they will kill me. And these men understood that the Romans killed people by means of crucifixion. So it's as if he said, they will mock me, they will spit on me, they will flog me, and they will crucify me. And then after three days, okay, I'm going to rise again from the dead. And this is the third time in as many chapters in the book of Mark that he has said this to them. He says it in chapter 8, chapter 9, here we are, chapter 10, bam, there it is again. And it's not muddled, is it? Like you don't read that and go, what do you think he's trying to say? But they don't understand it. They don't have any category for it. They have no eyes to see the cross. They only have eyes for the glory. And so they do here what they did basically in the other two chapters too. As soon as he makes the statement, what we read is how they begin to jockey amongst themselves for position in the kingdom and in the glory that they rightly, by the way, believed that Jesus was traveling up to Jerusalem to enter into. However, in their selfishness and self-centeredness, in their ego and pride, in their passions and sin, in their dreams and ambitions for themselves, in their plans and agendas, what they were blind to here again is the cross. What they missed is the fact that the place where Jesus would enter into His kingdom and glory was the cross. It was the place of death, which makes what happens next highly ironic. Because in verse 35, Mark tells us, he says, And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, these two brothers, came up to Jesus and they said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Have your kids ever done that to you? Like, I think every kid tries that once, right? Dad, I'm going to ask you for something, but promise me you'll say yes first, because there's stupid written across your forehead right now. Seriously. And what do you know to be true when your kid does that? You know that they're real insecure about what your answer is going to be. These guys are real insecure about what Jesus' answer is going to be, and, you know, so they try it out on him anyway. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. I mean, our parents never fell for this, and you, but you're God, so, you know, we'll give it a roll, like it might work with you. And Jesus said to them, what you say to your kids, tell me first what you're asking for. What do you want me to do for you? Now stop for a minute. How would you answer that question? What do you want me to do for you? 
Jesus says. Here's their answer. And they think they know what they're asking for. But they don't. Might that apply in our case too? What do you want me to do for you, Jesus says. And they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left. And here's why. Because in Jewish custom, group of people seated at a table, the one in the center, that is the position of highest honor, followed immediately by the one at his right and the one at his left. And so what these guys are asking Jesus to do is to exalt them above the other ten disciples, above me, above you, and above everybody else in all of history. And they're not exactly subtle about it. Like they're not going, Jesus, would you come over here for a minute? I've got a question for you, the two of us. You know, we'd like to kind of clear something up. And then if you go for this, it'd be helpful to us relationally if you would announce it to the group, okay? So you take the hit on this. They ask in front of the group. How does the group feel about that, do you think? How does Peter feel about that? Jesus had his 12, and then he had his inner three. Peter, James, John. Okay, even he is left out of this one. Exalt us, Lord, above all these other guys. And we care so much about that and so little for them that we're willing to insult them to ask. It's really something, isn't it? All this righteous indignation begins to develop in your heart, just like it did for them, until you examine what you ask Jesus for. Uh-oh. Then you start getting more humble, and you start going, oh, i got a little James and John in me. Examine your prayer life for a minute and ask yourself, when was the last time you laid your life down before the Lord and said, you know what, Lord, uh, I'm going to stop asking you for things related to me for a minute. Because it's always about me and my concerns and what I want and what I'd like and what I fear and what I have and what I want. And, you know, just to the exclusion of other people and even to the exclusion of you, how can I be a better servant of you in my home, in the place that I work, in the school that I go to, in my social circle? How can I better give my life away, Lord? And what do you want me to do exactly to do it? Because it's all in the box. It's wrapped up nice, sweet new bow. If you're anything like me, it's always these panicked prayers about yourself. And the Lord wants to hear your concerns. But it seems to me that we spend a lot of our time trying to get Jesus via prayer to serve us, and not much of our time realizing that prayer is an instrument through which we should be coming to learn to serve Him and others. So we get all indignant with these guys until we look at our own prayer life and until we consider as well just how many people God throughout the course of our life story has brought into our lives, right? So that we can serve, so that we can serve, that we've used, that we've stepped on over or around in our pursuit of what we want. Look, the mission that we're called to, to give our life to is a mission of service. It is led by people who begin slowly but surely and then to live out the understanding that we increase in truth by decreasing, that we gain, in fact, by giving, and that true exaltation is found not by getting everybody to do what you want them to do, including Christ, but by laying your life down in service to Him 
and to everyone else. That's what it means to follow Jesus. That's the path that he is taking us on. It is a path that leads to the cross, but what does the cross lead to? It leads to glory. See, we forget that. So Mark says in verse 35, And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And Jesus said to them, Okay, well, first of all, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Very ironic statement because, as I've already said, the place he enters into his glory is from the cross. So when you run to the cross narrative for a second, who's at his right and left? Two thieves also being crucified with Jesus in the place, ironically, of highest honor. Highest honor is the cross. Exaltation is the cross. It's a different way of thinking about life, isn't it? So James and John, just like us, unwittingly ask Jesus for something that is completely the opposite of what they think they're asking Jesus for. And it's not granted to them, just like oftentimes it's not granted to us. Were they miffed or thankful? Our Lord is altogether gracious. And so Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. I mean, first of all, this is not a seated position. Secondly, he says, are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? The answer to which is emphatically no. He's saying, guys, you don't understand. God has ordained a cup of wrath and judgment for your sin, for the sins of everybody who will place their faith and trust in me that I alone in all of history am capable of drinking. And here's why. Because I don't have a cup of my own. I've lived a perfect life. You can't offer your perfect life for anybody else. You can't drink the cup of wrath that someone else deserves. You've got a cup of your own. It's sitting there in front of you unless or until you bring it to me. Jesus is like, no, my cup's empty, but I'm going to fill it with your cup and your cup and your cup and your cup and your cup. Oh, you're coming to faith in me? I'm going to take that too from you and you and you. It's going to be a great big cup and I alone can drink it because I alone don't deserve it. And he's ordained a baptism of suffering and death and burial and resurrection for your sin, Jesus is saying, and for the sins of all who will put their faith and trust in me as well, that I alone can endure. And here's why. Because the sins that we commit against God are sins against an infinitely valuable being. And so our transgressions are of infinite devalue. So who alone has an infinitely valuable life? Is it not the one who is himself the eternal, invisible, infinite God who disrobed, who left heaven's throne, and who through a supernatural conception clothed himself in our humanity, entered into our world as the God-man, and as a man for men, endured this baptism, freely offering his perfectly righteous, infinitely valuable life by which to cover over the sins of all who come to him in faith. So Jesus says to James and John, look, guys, 
You don't know what you're asking me for, okay? Are you able to drink the cup of God's wrath for the sins of the world that I alone am qualified to drink? Or are you able to be baptized with the baptism with which I alone am able to be baptized? And again, you know, the answer to that is no, but that's not the answer that they give. They don't, they don't understand all of this yet. And they said to him, we are able. And so Jesus then said to them, and it's a little confusing, but I'll explain. He says, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. And in saying that, he's not saying you will suffer and die on a cross for the sins of the world in the same way that I will. But he is saying to them, to me and to you, just like there's a cross for me. And there is suffering and death for the salvation of the world. So it is for my followers. Because every day I'm going to lead you to that cross. And every day I'm going to ask you to crucify your desires so that you might take the salvation purchased by my life, death, burial, and resurrection and take it to the world. Because that's your mission if you follow me. Not anything else. So we don't die physically on the cross the way that Jesus did, but figuratively speaking, there is a cross and it's his cross. And to follow him is to go to it because that's where he goes. And it is to die in a different kind of way. But out of death comes life, real life. And the cross is a place of glory of honor, ironically, of exaltation. And so Jesus says to them in the last part of verse 39, the cup that I drink, you will at least in some sense drink, he's saying, and with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will at least in some sense be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And then Mark says that when the other ten heard what they're talking about here, And how James and John are asking to be exalted above them. Well, they began to be indignant at James and John. And why is that? Because just like all of us, they have eyes for the glory and no eyes for the cross. Which is the instrument of glory. It's the vehicle of glory. It's the way of glory. They're very quick to hear about the benefits of God's kingdom and very slow to hear about its costs. And so listen to what Jesus says next, because he doesn't just say it to them. He says it to us, too. Verse 42, it says, and Jesus called them to himself. He's like, we're going to have a little powwow right now. This is a teaching moment. And he said to them and to us, and notice the comparison that he makes, because it's the tension that we all feel. It's the struggle that every one of us struggles with practically every day. Oh, we might not struggle with it so much like in this hour, but just wait till about one in the afternoon when you start checking your emails. You know, we enter into this world in which this is the world that we live in. He says, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. Translation, you know that the way to promote yourself in this world is through power. It's through strength. It's through control. It's through manipulation by which you try to get everyone to serve you. To put it in its simplest form. But he calls us to a different kind of life. 
He immediately then says, don't miss this, but it shall not be so among you. He says, you want to be great? All right. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. You want to be first? Oh, no problem. Because whoever would be first among you must be slave of how many people? Of all. Not of some, not of those you like. I think I can serve them. That's not a big deal. That looks like a mess over there. Why don't you serve over there? Go ahead. I think you got more time than me. Just no, really. I'll, I'll you know seriously. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. So here's what we now want to do. We want to argue with Jesus, and he slays every argument with his closing statement. He says, for even the Son of Man, time out, even the eternal, invisible, infinitely valuable God, for whom, by whom, through whom, all things were created, and who deserves the worship and service unfettered 100% of every creature and of everything. For even that being who through this supernatural conception came into the world on that first Christmas, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So now what argument do you want to raise that, okay, Jesus, maybe you don't deserve it, but I do. It's like done right there. It's game over. He's good. Pretty sure that's the end of the conversation. You know, the mission that we're on is a mission of service. It's led by people who understand that we increase in ways the world will just not even understand or appreciate by decreasing. What? In what economy is that? A different one. That we gain for ourselves things that oftentimes we cannot see, spend, store, use. Now but that are ours forever. And how do we gain them? By giving ourselves away. And that true exaltation is not the kind that makes the papers. It's just not. At least not the papers of earth. But it's celebrated somewhere else before a world full of witnesses before whom you live for Jesus True exaltation is found not in getting everyone here, including Jesus, to sign off on your plan, to facilitate your agenda, to do what it is that you really want Him to do for you. It, it, It consists in laying your life down in service to Him and to everyone else. That is what it means to follow Jesus. That's the path He leads us on. It's the path to the cross, which ironically is the place of exaltation, and glory, and life. It's where you die to live. And so in closing, I want to invite you, figuratively speaking, to the cross of Jesus for a minute. I want you to consider it. The one who was born to die 
whose birth prefigures his death. And as you stand in its shadow, I want you to consider the following questions. Number one, what kind of a servant are you? What kind of a servant are you? And just do it in categories. What kind of a servant am I to my husband or wife? What kind of a servant am I to my kids or or parents? What kind of a servant am I in my office and with my friends, in my school, in this city? How am I giving my life away practically, tangibly, actually in this city to take the mercies and message of Jesus to a city that needs to hear and see and feel and experience them? And what about the world? Because I'm a global Christian, it's a global mission. What kind of a servant are you? Secondly, is there anyone that you think is unworthy of your service? Now think about that because some people are easier to serve. We talked a little bit about that. And have you considered the fact that while you were yet in your sin, Christ Jesus himself, none other than the Son of Man, died for you. That is the ultimate act of service by the ultimate servant for people like me who are like the ultimate unworthy. And think of the value then that he places on you. Think of the tenderness of his heart toward you. Think of the affections of the Holy One, therefore, then for you. Thirdly, what do you need to crucify in you in order to be a better servant of Jesus? You know, I mean, I gave you a list. Is it selfishness or self-centeredness? Am I the only one who ever has issues with that? I don't think so. I mean, James comes to us and he says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? And you were like, yeah, what is it? Because it's, you know, it's confusing. I don't understand. Okay. He gives us the answer. He says, is it not the desires that do battle within you? Desires for what? For what we want. (laughs) What do you need to crucify? And lastly, What are you going to do about it? Because here's the deal. Jesus did something about it. It's part of his closing argument. I'll give it to you again. It's cool. He says, even the Son of Man came into the world on that first Christmas not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for you. for you. So what are you going to do about it? I'll let you think about that one. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the ultimate servant who is our Savior, who is our Lord, who is our brother, who is our friend, who is our God, who is the bridegroom and we are the bride who meets and fulfills and surpasses all of these wonderful analogies by which you come to us in the Bible and try to explain his glory and his gospel to us. None more wonderful than servant. Lord, I pray that we might stand at his cross and that we too might die to live but this time to live for him. Do these things, we pray, for your glory, for the good of your kingdom, for the blessing of this, your people.
for the blessing of this city and for the blessing of the world, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, before I step down um, and these guys close us out here in a second, I want to share a few things with you. Uh, you know, we were going to have a meeting afterwards, and I thought, you know, really, it just works with what I'm talking about today, because I want to talk to you a little bit about service, and I want to stop, and hopefully without undoing the challenge that I just gave, uh, I do want to pay a compliment to this group of people. Uh, and what I want to say as your pastor is, uh, this is the best-serving group of people I have ever been around. Um, and that is really true. That is statistically like a fact. 35 to 40 percent of the people that gather with us every week are serving inside the walls of this church in some way, shape, or form, most of which go completely unnoticed and unthanked and unseen. And that's okay. It's not unseen by the one for whom the service is actually being done. And that actually doesn't capture everybody who is serving because we deploy you guys and you go out. We say, find your thing, do your thing. If that's here, great. If that's somewhere else, great. And I go all over the city and I meet with all kinds of ministry leaders and I run into all kinds of Christians all over the place and they speak in superlatives about the people of this church. Everywhere I go. And I just want to pass that blessing on to you. And I want to share with you for a couple of minutes, because we're at the end of the year, some of the things that the Lord has done through your prayers, through your hours of labor, through your volunteerisms, through your sacrifice, through the use of your leadership gifts, through your generosity of every different kind this year at this church. And I'm going to give you numbers, but we don't focus on the numbers. Like, we don't have numerical goals for anything. We have a process goal, and then things happen that later can be sort of counted. Our children's ministry has grown 44%, like in the last three years. Our church has grown 30%, 13% in the last year. 44% our children's ministry has grown, which means that you are truly taking seriously the idea of being fruitful and multiplying, okay? God bless you. It says something about how we're growing, though, doesn't it? Our mom's ministry, we got like 100 moms that meet every month. They meet up in the attic. They come here with all the little kids that they can't put in preschool or school. And I want to tell you just figuratively how many little kids that is. You see this whole room? We take all the chairs out of this room. We stack them up in walls. And this whole room becomes the child care center. When I walked through here the first time, I thought, what is going on? And then I realized, it's kids. It's awesome. It's really awesome. Bethany Christian School, we have poured massive amounts of time and energy and resources into our school, massive amounts over the course of the last five years because we believe in Bethany Christian School. We are Bethany Christian School. It's not a different organization. And the Lord has turned that school around under Sam's leadership and under the leadership of his amazing staff and faculty and all the people that God is bringing to us in that school. We've grown in our enrollment by 30% in two years. It's unheard of. We've broken the enrollment records the last two years in a row. And better than that, there is a wonderful, blessed spirit and community of people at Bethany Christian School. And we also have a dad's ministry because the dads have become jealous of the moms. And, and Sam who's a very gifted teacher, leads that. Our student ministries continue to grow in all the right ways. Not just, hey, wow, it's fun, but grow deep. We are establishing a culture of deep 
disciples of Jesus in our student ministries, and it's magnificent. And all the folks who lead those student ministries, Mason, Scott, Venice, all these guys, do such a terrific job. We've also got great relationships now and inroads into Fort Lauderdale High School, uh, inroads into Sunrise Middle School. Uh, so it's not just all of the private Christian school kids anymore. It's, it's everybody coming in, and that has been an incredible blessing for us, and I hope for them. Collage is a ministry we started halfway through this year. We just took Carter out of student ministries. We replaced him, at least in high school ministries, with Mason. We said, Carter, we're going to rehire you. Not that we can afford it, but we're going to do it anyway. We're going to rehire you, and we want you to lead this ministry. You know, one of the things that God is blessing us with are young adults. And young adults are not just the future leaders of the church, guys. They're leaders of the church now. Now. And we want to make a significant investment in that, recognizing, hey, this is what you're sending us, Lord? Okay, great. And Carter's doing a terrific job with that. Um, new members. We just brought in the largest new members class we've ever had. Um, <laughs> Uh, it's really pretty cool. Gathering, I said that our attendance is up by 13%, and I think that Ryan and this worship team, and I don't just say this because they're right here, but they are right here, um, do an amazing job. And I look at the additions that God has brought to this team this year. Like, you know, we had an awesome team, and then the Lord brought us Hannah, and He brought us Joyce, and He brought us Jag, and He brought us David back there on the guitar. And all of these people, I mean, He just continues to grow this particular ministry that Ryan has shepherded and used to develop a worship culture in our church that is very, very different from the worship culture when He first arrived. It's very different. Plug in. We have 20 community groups or so, maybe a little more actively meeting. We need 40. That's a cry for help. Like if that's the heart of what we do, we need you to lead more groups. We need you to host a group as we move into the next year. Like if you're in on that, we need to know. Uh, we need that so we can make that available to more people. Marriage ministry. We started one. Ryan led that as well. We had 140 people at our marriage retreat. Okay, 70 couples. We thought if we got 30 to 35, we would be killing it. And killing it, for those of you over 50, you don't have teenagers, that's a good thing. That's a good, it's good to kill it. We thought that would be killing it, okay? 70 couples, and we, we maxed it and got a waiting list. And backfilled as a few dropped out. I, I got no explanation for that, other than apparently, you know, we're scratching the right itch as the Lord is, is trying to lead us here. Um, it's a wonderful thing. Serve. You know, the Rio house continues to do really well. That's the fourplex that we bought and renovated for uh, single moms and, and children who needed a place to live. And our families are working well with them, and they're, they're, they're Rio people now. I mean, it's just wonderful. Other local ministries, as I said, they're always complimenting us. We said at the beginning of the year, if we can get 35 people to Haiti, in addition to our students, that would be also killing it. Um, there were about 100 people in addition to our students who went to Haiti. Sent another five to India. Yeah, it's awesome. We had 100, over 150 people go through personal evangelism training and so forth. Benevolence, real quick, okay? Uh, this stuff goes on and nobody knows about it. And, but we met every financial need brought to us that was best served financially this year. Sometimes money isn't the answer. But we've got a great team of people who analyze those things and go, yep, this is, and we can help. And I mean, it's, and that's true for people inside the church. That's true for people outside the church. I heard a story about a, a young uh, single mom who went through his caring place, a, a crisis pe pregnancy home, 
had her child, got a job, working for a doctor. Through one of our members, I heard that her car died dead. And she needed a car or, you know, I mean, transportation is kind of a big deal. You don't realize it unless you can't afford to have it. Um, and this church, uh, because some people really say that's my thing, bought her a car. We did that like 10 times this year. And that's a small portion. So it's been a pretty amazing year. And I think the Lord has done wonderful things. And I want to bless you guys by just showing you a little bit. But I want to challenge you too. We need community group leaders. We need host homes. We need more volunteer hours. Um, God has grown this church now to the point where like as a staff... We've hit the ceiling, really, and we need what we need underneath us is administrative help. Uh, we've been hiring executive-level people, you know, pastoral-level people who now make all their own phone calls and schedule all their own meetings and send all their own emails. And, who, you know, and at some point, like if you're trying to get a hold of Matt, I looked at his phone just before I came out here. He has 11 messages on his phone. That's like since yesterday, probably. He's the hub of the wheel. So by faith, we just said, we're hiring you somebody. That's it. She starts January 1. We're really excited about that. But Ryan, who leads worship and marriage, needs an assistant. He's been asking for five years. Uh, We need to increase the hours in our children's ministries. We are in the black going into the end of this year. It's not a cry for help. This is not panic. It's not what I'm trying to say. What I am saying is that we've created a budget that will address those things that won't be approved until January, and that will feel a lot more confident approving if we can finish this year really well. We're going to increase some ministry budgets, particularly collage, and we're going to set money aside for Haiti and for India for two reasons. One, when we go to these impoverished places and when we our people see what these needs are, we want a budget that's fairly substantial to be able to invest in those needs. We've adopted villages and places in both countries. And secondly, and this is a big deal for me and I know for our staff, you know, we've been talking about going on a mission trip like all year. Did you get that message? Did we publicize that enough? Because it's one of the single most transformational things that you can do. But not everybody can afford to do it. And it drives me nuts when economics decide for you whether you can engage in something that has to do with the spiritual life of this church family. Drives me nuts. So we want to be able to set some money aside and to say when you come to us, okay, I can't afford it. Okay, what can you afford? What can you raise? How much do you need? Do you need $400 extra to go? Here, because we've budgeted for that. And you can go. So those are the kinds of things that we're looking at. And uh, and I just want to leave you with that, okay? God has done wonderful things in this place, by His Spirit, through you guys. I want you to feel that. And I think that He has a wonderful plan for us for next year as well. And if you can help us by giving, serving, praying, all of the above, well, then do that. Empty yourself in favor of the world and in favor of each other. And do it as an act of service to the Lord.